as a young Christian, I remember, you know, as a young Christian, you start reading the Bible, and I was always told, you know, start with the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then after that, like, nobody really told me what to do, so I just started looking for the shortest books, so I think I've read James like a thousand times, <laughs> which if you haven't read James a thousand times, you should, because like, if I could give somebody one book in the Bible to read, read James. It's, an, it's amazing. Sums up the, the New Testament wonderfully. But at one point, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to read the whole Bible. What a concept. Um, so I decided I would start at the beginning with Genesis and start reading through. And very quickly, I started running into very confusing concepts and ideas. And I was like, what? Have I, what? Huh? Especially like when you read through Deuteronomy. It's just basically a big rule book for rules I didn't know that we needed. Um, for instance, the one that stuck out to me the most is talking about how to resolve uh, an unsolved murder. And it's in Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. It says, when you're in the land of your Lord, your God has given you, someone may be found murdered in a field and you don't know who committed the murder. You know, when you're just walking to Bethany and like there's a dead body, you know, you got to, oh, dead body, got to do something with it. So in such a case, your elders and judges must measure the distance from one site of the crime to the nearby towns which they didn't have tape measures back then, so I'm not sure. What, I don't know if they just did like one, two, but either way, still getting more and more complex. When the nearest town has been determined, that town's elders must select from the herd a heifer that has never been trained or yoked to a plow. They must lead it down to the valley that has not been plowed or planted and that has a stream running through it. There in the valley, you must break the heifer's neck. Then the Levitical priest must step forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister before him and pronounce blessings in the Lord's name. They are to decide all legal and criminal cases. The elders of the town must wash their hands over the heifers whose neck was broken, and they must say, our hands did not shed this person's blood, nor did we see it happen. O Lord, forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not charge your people with the guilt of murdering an innocent man. Then they will be absolved of the guilt of this person's blood. By following these instructions, you will do what is right in the Lord's sight and will cleanse the guilt of murder from your community. And I was always like, why do we need this? Like, how many dead bodies are found that we need to, like, have this long, drawn-out description of what we need to do? But then I thought about it in, like, modern context. Why is there a sign on the airplane door that says, don't open during flight? Somebody did it. Like, at some point, <laughs> these instructions were necessary. So I got it. Like, I mean, I was like... The Deuteronomic code, the Deut I knew I was going to say it wrong. I knew I was going to say it wrong instead of here. The code in Deuteronomy, got it, existed because they were legitimate issues. I mean, when you don't have Christ's blood and redemption to cover all of your sins, you are, like, you have to worry about specifics. You have to worry about every single thing because you're trying to stay in tune with God. So even despite the specificity, specificity and strangeness of these laws, they still made sense to me. I understood that, like, the Jews were stuck in this perpetual cycle of atonement. They had to do something. They couldn't just say, oh, dead body, too bad, don't know what to do, didn't see it happen, not my problem. Like, they had to continuously stay in tune with God. So even as a young Christian, I was like, that makes sense to me. But even growing in my faith, there's always been a verse that each time I read it, it kind of left me puzzled. I I never really understood certain details, and I kind of just read over it and just let it be what it was, um, because I never quite understood what was being conveyed. And that's in Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. It says, The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and he, needed, he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. 
So he went over to it to see if he can find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat of you again. And the disciples heard him say it. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered up from the roots. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. And then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Now, I get the illustration of being able to like pick up a mountain, throw it into the sea. It's an illustration of faith. We see a similar illustration in uh, Matthew 17, the one we all know. If you have a faith of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move, and it can move. Um, I get that. that. That wasn't what I had problem, problems with. Um, and this whole idea of like having faith that can move a mountain is this like great, triumphant, um, wonderful story. The thing that always got me was like, why are you cursing the fig tree? I, I never understood like why, um, especially because it even said like it's not even in fruit yet. It's not in the season for fruit. I was just like, why would he curse it? So as I was just like, as I wrestled with that and like, I, I don't want to say, and this is, I swear, I'm not trying to commit blasphemy. I swear, I swear, I swear. It was just like, to me, it almost seemed like kind of petty for Jesus to curse the fig tree. I was always kind of like, did you like have to do that though? Like, you have to do it? But knowing that's not God's character, I was like, okay, he's not being petty. So there's a reason behind it. So I had to dig a little bit deeper. And being the nerd that I am, I was like, this is an opportunity for me to learn about something I don't know about. So I started Googling about fig trees. And I started figuring out why fig trees grow, how they grow, and how they produce fruit. So what I found out, for one thing, fig trees often give off two or three fruitings a year. So, like, there's not just one season for fruit for figs as there are, like, with apples or whatever. Um, so, if they're walking through and it's not in that season of fruit, theoretically, there could be fruit from the previous season still on the branches. Also, fig trees often sprout their fruit before they sprout their leaves. And I know this to be true just from personal experience because Bree's dad used to have a fig tree in the backyard. And you could see the little green figs would always sprout before the leaves would be there. So, the fig would sprout the leaf would cover it, and then that would allow it time to ripen and grow. So I was like, okay. So from a logical standpoint, my Enneagram 6 brain now comprehends. I get it. Okay. Also, what I found out is that in the Bible, the fig tree often represents Israel. And then in this particular circumstance, Israel's lack of fruit represents their lack of worship. Remember, when Jesus was walking past the fig tree to curse it, he and the disciples were on their way to the temple where the money changers were exchanging money in the temple, and he went to flip the tables. So this is an illustration of God's displeasure with Israel's worship at the time. He was tired of meaningless gifts. So by cursing the tree, this was illustrating his disapproval. God is not pleased when I worship, when our worship becomes nothing more than a business deal, a this for that. He wants our heart. And so we see that here in Isaiah 1, 10 through 12. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many gifts given in worship to me, says the Lord? I have had enough burnt gifts of rams and the fat of cattle. I am not pleased with the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to show yourselves before me, who says you must walk and walk around my open spaces? 
And then there's a tie-in to, to Psalm 51. It says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, for you will not reject a broken and repentant heart. God doesn't want our attendance if we are physically here but mentally elsewhere. Um, he doesn't want our worship if we sing the words but they bounce off our hearts. Uh, a few months ago, I started reading a devotional by E. Stanley Jones, and in one of those devotionals, he, he talks about this illustration that, again, it, it, everything ties back to the tree. He says, one day, two Texas ranchers were, were desperately in need of rain. You know, their fields were dried up. They're, they're looking at their stock. Their stock's skinny. You can see the ribs. And one of the ranchers looks up, and he points. He goes, look, a rain cloud. And the other one just shakes his head. Hawks, not none but empties. And so what that illustration is alluding to is in Jude 12, and it says, um, they are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. Uh, and Jones goes on to expand on that verse. And he says, they come down to the autumn of their lives, the period of ripe fruitfulness, when life should be laden with peace and calm and memories of a life well spent. And instead, what do they show themselves to be? Autumn trees with no fruit. The saddest thing in life is to see a person come to the autumn of time with nothing to show except a decadent self. What Jones is saying here is that as a Christian, our calling is to contribute to the kingdom of God. It's our duty to contribute to the church as a whole. Otherwise, we're just living decadent lives, pleasing ourselves with what we see fit. And you may say, like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like, I'm not, I'm not sinning. I'm just, like, living my best life. You know, I'm just enjoying the fruits of my labor. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what God is saying. Like, enjoying the fruits of your labor is not sinful. Enjoying time with your family on the weekend is not sinful. Um, this word decadence, again, being an English major, I got to nerd out a little bit, and I'm going to read you the Merriam-Webster de definition. Decadence is, and it gives like this little preamble, sometimes in the dictionary it'll tell you like, oh, this has like a negative or positive connotation. Uh, decadence has a disapproving nature, and it means having low morals and a great love of pleasure, money, and fame. So spending time with your family is not decadence. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about living this life of just more, 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 hand over fist, shoveling into yourself, whatever that is, love or money or pleasure, just everything is self-focused on you. So obviously we are not called to a life of, of decadence. Christ did not live a life of decadence. Instead, our lives, just like Christ's, are to be lives of servitude. It's to serve one another, to serve our friends, our families, clients, and ultimately to serve God in all we do, and not to sit around and squander our talents and gorge ourselves on fleshly pleasures. So I know I'm like, I'm talking fast. I'm giving you lots of information. I swear this is all like tying in to the story. Give me one second. Cheers. So let's look at uh, a parable I think we're all familiar with. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase a little bit just for the sake of time. But it's the parable of, of the servants. And it's a rich man. He's going on vacation. And he's got three servants. And so he leaves one servant five bags of silver, and he leaves the second servant two bags of silver, and he leaves the third servant one bag of silver. And so before we even talk about what they do with that, I want us to think about that illustration as to like the way God feeds into our life. Or like, let's think about it. Anybody who manages a company or is a teacher or a parent of multiple children, there are people under you who you probably trust more than others. So in this situation, 
the owner of the house is giving five bags of silver to this one servant, two to another, and one to the other. Why? Well, I think one of them has proved himself worthy of the trust to deal with that five bags. The second one has shown himself worthy to deal with those two, and the third has shown himself worthy to deal with one. And we'll see how that leads as we go along. So the one who had five, he goes and invests it, and he gets five more, so he doubles his money. The one with two, he saves that money, but he goes to work, and he gains another two, so he also doubles his money. The one that he gave one to does nothing with it. He buries it underground and then waits for his servant or his master to return. And so when the master returns, he goes to the one who had five bags and he said, what have you done with my money? He says, master, I took your five bags, I invested them and I doubled your money. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he takes the one who had two and he says, what have you done with my money? He says, I went to work and I earned another two bags. I've doubled your money. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he goes to the last one and I don't want to paraphrase because the wording is key. He says, then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gather crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank and I can at least have gotten some interest on it? Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. And this is key. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And now you may be saying, Mitchell, that's pretty harsh. Well, I didn't write this, first off, so... <laughs> Yet, yeah, at the same time, we know God's character. He is not a harsh God, and I don't think he's trying to use this parable to scare us into service. I think he's using this illustration to show us a reality of who we are without him at the helm. I think the reality is that when we submit to our own desires and when we and our life's goal is to seek comfort rather than service of others, we live out of sync with God. That first servant he gave five bags to, I promise you in the past, he had done things for that master that has shown himself faithful. That's why you would trust him with five bags. The one he gave one bag to, we don't know because it doesn't tell us, but I guarantee you either that master only trusted him that much or he was saying, you know what? This is somebody who has not proven themselves to me. I'm going to give him an opportunity to prove himself and to work for this, and to see what he does with it, and he squandered it and failed. And I think that's the illustration for us as well. What things is God handing over to you to be a good steward of that we aren't stewarding well? You know, I know that I don't always steward my time very well. I don't know how many, Bree can probably tell you how many hours I spend on YouTube a day, probably too much. But like, if we're yearning for more, if we're sitting here going, oh, I just don't have opportunities if I just don't have things that God wants me to do. I don't, I, I'm missing out on things. I think what we need to do is to analyze what gifts we've been given that we aren't stewarding well right now. You know, James says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entices us and drags us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Uh, and again, that's another one of those like direct harsh verses that speak volumes to me because it keeps me from going, eh, it'll be okay. I don't really have to take care of that. 
that one moment of neglect in our lives, whether it's neglecting a relationship, whether it's neglecting a car, whether it's neglecting um, our, our finances, whether it's neglecting our work, whatever it is, that attitude is what's wrong. It's not to say, uh, this car is old. It doesn't matter if I take care of it or not. It's eventually going to fall apart anyway. It doesn't matter about the car. It's not the car. It's your attitude towards what God is giving you to steward. It's your attitude towards what am I taking care of? Because what you take care of and what you steward well, God's going to go, look at that. You are faithful in the little. Therefore, I know that you'll be faithful in much. So if you want to see more in your life, think about the little things in your life. What am I not being faithful with? What am I not stewarding well? Neglecting the gifts that we've been given leads to a wasted and decadent life. For what other life can you live without serving others? Serving yourself. That's all it's about. We've been called to a life of service, of serving God, of serving one another, serving the church. And serving the church means people sitting right next to you in this building and also the church abroad. So talking about service. Where should you serve? Some of us serve on the worship team. Some serve in child care. Some serve on the load-in team. Others may feel like you don't have a place to serve here. And church is a great place to serve, but it may look different for everyone. You know, the first place, I can tell you the very first place we all need to serve. It's on your knees in prayer with God. That is the first place you need to serve. You know, if you're thinking, you know, I sing in the shower, so I really need to be on stage. It's like, then, you know, not necessarily, not necessarily. We like that spirit, but that's not necessarily what it means. <laughs> your first place of service needs to be on your knees in prayer because God has a vision for your life, and he's trying to communicate it to you. Trying to figure out where you need to serve without prayer is like trying to get from here to Alaska without a road map. I could probably guess my way, and I'll, don't say anything, Bree, and I'll probably get there eventually, but it's not going to be the way that God intended me to, and it's certainly going to take a lot longer than it needs to. And that's, what, and that's what E. Stanley Jones is talking about. Those people who spend their lives trying to figure out, oh, what am I trying to do? I'm going to do this, I want to do that. You find yourself, you're 65 years old, and you have nothing to show but I don't know, you might have a lot of comfort, but like you have zero connection with God and you're just frustrated and bitter because you've missed out on all of these opportunities to serve because you spent your time seeking what you wanted rather than opening your heart to what God has for you. So service should cost you something. It should cost you time, it should cost you money, comfort, whatever, but service that doesn't cost isn't service. The idea of service in our walk with God isn't what outward thing you can point to and say, that's, that's what I do. That's what I do to serve. You know, box checked. You know, me standing up here playing guitar and then going home is not service. Me standing up here talking is not service if it doesn't do anything for my heart. You know, it shouldn't be something you feel obligated to do either. Seriously, if you feel obligated to serve, like if you, I'm not going to call I'm not going to, never mind. Uh, if you feel obligated to serve... <laughs> Try not to step on anybody's toes. I love all of you, and I don't want to say anything bad. Um, I'll use myself as an example. There I'll be self-deprecating. That'll be much better. Um, there are days that I drive to work. I'm a middle school teacher, so please pray for me on the daily basis. Please, please. I, 13 and 14-year-olds are the craziest people on earth, and some of the meanest, too. So anyway, there are some days where I show up, and I'm just like, whatever. I'm here. I didn't call out today. You're welcome. Okay. 
I'm here to babysit and to try to teach you kids how to read, okay? Sit down, listen, learn something. But you know, that's not the heart that God wants me to have with my kids, with my job, with any of that. That is not the heart he wants me to have. Yeah, am I, am I fulfilling my obligation? Absolutely. I came to work. I did it. And then I left at 4.15 at contract time, and you can't say anything wrong. So boom. <laughs> but that's not the heart that God wants us to have, right? You know, he doesn't want us to do anything out of obligation or compulsion. No, what he really wants for you is for you to get closer to him, to seek him in all that you do, to prayerfully and humbly seek him through prayer and through his word so that we may know him. Because when you know him, these acts of service and even tithing or anything, coming to church, prayer, it's not done out of compulsion, but on an uncontrollable outpouring of love that you have for him. You know, it's... It's just like, I can't help but love my wife. It's not because of an, a compulsion. It's because of an outpouring that I have of how much I love her. I can't help but serve my wife. And how much more so than the savior of the world, the creator of the universe, how much more so could you have compulsion to pour out your love for him? And, and I'll close with this last encouragement. It says, going back to trees. If you desire for a tree to bear fruit, it has to have deep roots. And these roots support trees, they feed the tree, they seek out the nourishment it needs to produce fruit. So if you think of yourself as a tree, then your roots are your personal relationship with God. Uh, and I want to stop, I just want to tell you a story real quick, real quick. It came up to me like 20 minutes ago and I, I wanted to tell you. So my dad, I'm an only child and a boy, therefore I'm free labor for my family. Um, so ever since... We used to have a riding lawnmower, like one of those little snappers you sit on. And like, if any of you have them, there's like a weight detector. So like if you come off, you know, it doesn't chop your arm off when you fall on the ground. So my dad used to take bricks and put them in the seat so that at like seven and eight years old, I was still heavy enough to drive the lawnmower around the yard. Couldn't hit the brake pedal. No, that's why he's like, if you need to stop, just turn it off. You'll be fine. So, so for years growing up, my dad forced me to do yard work which at the time, I absolutely hated it. But now, I, would, I wish somebody would employ me to work outside. Like, now I love it. I don't know if it's because he forced me to do it, and now subconsciously I do, but anyway. One time, he was going out of town, and we had these big boxwood bushes in front of our house. And my dad wanted to rip them out because he wanted to put a new flower bed in. And so he comes outside, and he's like, all right, Mitchell, while I leave this weekend, I need you to rip the bushes out. And I looked at him, and I'm like, how? What do you want me to do? How are you supposed to what do you want me to do? And he's, I'm like, I went and like grabbed it. I'm like trying to yank on it. He's like, what are you doing, son? You're not going to be able to yank the bush out of the ground. So then I go get a shovel and I start like tooling around around the dirt. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to dig this. It's going to take me three days all weekend. And he's like, hold on, hold on. He goes and gets his big old full bed Chevy Silverado. He gets a ratchet strap. He walks over to the bush, wraps it around the bush, wraps the ratchet strap, around his trailer hitch, he gets in, vroom, and the bush like flies over the truck, he just yanks it out of the ground. And I was like, okay, I'll do that, that sounds fun. And can I tell you, if you've never, if you have bushes you wanna pull out and you have a truck, that's what you should do when you go home today. Go rip some bushes out of the ground. It is, nothing screams like power, like being able to rip a bush out of the ground in a heartbeat with a Chevy Silverado. But I tell you that story because I want you to understand, I personally could not yank that bush out of the ground, but with the Chevy Silverado, I can yank them suckers out of the ground in a heartbeat. 
And just like Satan is a roaring lion looking around for people to devour, Satan is driving around in a Chevy Silverado looking for bushes he can yank out of the ground because their roots aren't going deep enough. Okay, just saying. Well, if it's Satan, it's probably a Ford. But you get the, you get the illustration. <laughs> oh, be mad. I'm, I'm also from Atlanta, so go Braves. Oh, I'm so... <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so before you guys jump up here and attack me, I'll close out. <laughs> so, so if you think of yourself as a tree, then your roots are your personal relationship with God. If you're not seeing fruit in your life, and if you feel like you're struggling, you're tired, and you just can't quite get to where you need to go, examine your roots. Examine how much time you're sp- seeking God. Notice I said seeking and not spending. And again, I'm an English teacher, so like semantics and word choice is all about, like that's what gets in my head. You spend time with God every day. God is everywhere. God is all around. Therefore, you are always spending time with God. You need to spend time seeking God. Just like I can spend time with my wife on the couch on my phone for a week and a half, and who knows that relationship will suffer if I don't talk to her at all. Obviously. I can spend time with her, but if I don't talk to her, if I don't know, like, what are your wants? What are your thoughts? What are your desires? What are your troubles? Like, talk to me. Let's build this relationship. It will suffer the same way your relationship with God will. You know, and just like my relationship with my wife, I don't spend time boasting to other people about, like, my wife, she's awesome, and we have a great relationship, and nothing's ever bad, and we've never argued ever, ever. We're perfect. That's why, do you see Luke? He came up here. He talked about it. We're awesome. We're perfect. We're virtual. Okay. We know, first off, that's a lie. And then second off, like, boasting about my relationship in public gains nothing for my wife. Like, she, it doesn't help her. It doesn't help me. Don't be the Pharisee on the corner in the marketplace praying aloud. Look how wonderful, look how much fruit I'm bearing. Look at all this fruit. Look at all this fruit. <laughs> I've completely lost my place in my sermon notes. <laughs> oh. Yeah, don't be the Pharisee. He's already received his gifts. God tells us, go away, lock yourself in a room. Or I didn't say lock, shut the door. <laughs> shut the door and pray to your father in private. Your effort should not go into trying to make fruit in your life grow, but have a deep, real, intentional relationship with the creator of the universe so that he can grow those roots. And out of that relationship with him, fruit will grow out of the blessing of his spirit. You can't will yourself to have fruit in your life. Or if you do, it's going to be withered and rotten or unripened. It's not going to be what you're looking for. You seek God and your relationship with him. His spirit is what grows your roots. Just like a tree cannot will itself to grow. It needs sunlight. It needs nourishment from the soil. It needs water. All of these things are elements that represent your relationship and seeking God. You cannot will yourself to have fruit. Only God can give you fruit. And those fruits, you can recognize them. That's how you can tell if people are, if they're just flexing or if they've actually got fruit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So so find ways to seek God. And I think this can look a lot of different ways for different people. And I mean, like, whether you read your Bible in the morning or in lunchtime or in the evening, whatever. You do whatever you need to do. It doesn't matter if you read, like, a devotional or if you're reading your Bible and then you do a worship song or if you do worship song first. That doesn't matter as much. What matters and what is universal for all of us is prayer. Just talking to God the same way we talk to each other, the same way you would talk with anyone you care deeply about. If your intention is to grow into this great big tree to show off your fruit, you're fighting a losing battle. 
Instead, retune your heart and focus below the surface. Seek him so that he can grow your roots, create a deeper and richer relationship with him, and out of that loving intentionality, fruit will come.